It's not that evil doesn't happen to us. It's not that God suddenly zaps all the evil away. It's that he takes what is evil, and if we allow him, if we give it to him, he transforms it. He didn't need it to happen to transform us, but as we offer it to him, he takes what is most broken in our lives and makes it the place of his of his beauty, of the place where he is most clearly seen. And in that sense, you know, for me, OCD has been one of the great griefs of my life. And it's also the place where I have seen God's reality and God's inbreaking beauty again and again in ways I cannot deny. And so I think that's, and that's very much behind the book is this sense of wanting to witness to the reality of God's radical and beautiful presence coming into the darkness to transform it. That was Sarah Clarkson, and this is the Things Above Podcast. Today's guest for a Things Above Conversation is Sarah Clarkson. I am so excited to have Sarah on the show. I've been reading her book for the last few months, and it's really, really good. Sarah is an author and a blogger who writes regularly about literature, faith, and beauty at www.sarahclarkson.com. She has a great story. She studied theology at Oxford and has written some books, and the book that we'll be talking about came about because of her time there. Sarah has an active following on Instagram, at Sarah Wanders, where she hosts regular live read-alouds from the poems, novels, or essays that bring her courage. She can often be found with a good cup of tea and a book in hand, in her home on the English coast, where she lives with her Anglican vicar husband, Thomas, and their two children, Lillian and Samuel. Welcome, Sarah. I am so glad that you are on the Things Above podcast. And I just want to say right away, I really loved reading your book. And the book is, for our listeners, This Beautiful Truth. And I've studied and written myself on the subject of beauty. So there's some people I connect with that you quote, which is wonderful when you're reading Um, But I found such great insights into beauty, things that I didn't know. So you opened up things, even though I've studied the subject some, things that really inspired me and helped me connect dots that I hadn't connected before. So I really appreciated that. And I think mainly it was just this idea of uh, how beauty is connected to personal pain, which is, Mm. I mean, your very deep and penetrating explanation of how suffering and beauty are interrelated was really profound. And Mm. So thank you for writing this book. I am a writer myself, and I know how hard writing is. So thanks for writing it. (laughs) Oh, you're very kind. Well, I'm I'm glad to have it out in the world. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it is. Isn't that great when you're a writer? You're like so happy you spend all that time to get it to where it is. There's a lot of moving parts no one sees. Yes. I always feel like it's a birthing a baby is birthing a book, kind of the same. It is. (laughs) It is very much like that. Yeah. And then when people ask you, like, what's your favorite book? It's like, well, oh. it's like, what's my favorite child? I mean, <laughs> exactly. I can't. Yeah. So I like that, the birthing. So my first question is the one that I ask every guest on the Things About podcast is, why did you write this book? That is a very good question. It's This is one of those books that I think it grew up in my soul over 20 years. It was one of those that it was it was growing in me through so many years of struggle and wrestling that in many ways, you know, some books come to you as a, I want to write about this because I'm interested in it and this fascinates me. And some books kind of feel like they come from your blood and soil and sweat and tears. And this this book definitely was that. But I think ultimately what brought it to the point of I actually wanted to write it was, I think that, you know, it's very much the story of how I found God's goodness and beauty 
in the midst of of my darkness and my journey of suffering because I think we all have a story that includes suffering of a kind and I think you know in some ways it, to write it was an exploration of my story kind of a figuring it all out in a way but then it became I think a witness mostly to the beauty I found because I I think that you know I read a lot of theodicy when I was Okay, we got. I got to hit pause on there. Well, yes, <laughs> theologian lady, theodicy is a yes. defense of yeah, a defense of, of God. God's goodness, uh, despite mm-hmm. the fact that the world is evil. So it, yeah. it actually um, made of two words, meaning God's justice. So how do we justify God's goodness despite the fact that the world is evil? And and I felt like so much of the time I was being argued with by theologians and by writers that I was reading that I was somehow supposed to feel okay about God as long as I had the five right things to believe. And I I think increasingly I just felt this hunger to encounter God's real goodness. And I think what I needed was to to meet him again as tender, as loving, as present in the midst of my story. And so I think because I really do feel like I I was given that grace that God did break in in that beautiful way. Um, and I believe he is, is at that work of breaking in with beauty into every person's story. I wanted to tell about that to kind of witness to the reality of his beauty, the possibility of finding it, the hope that it's real for other people, I think, walking in their own kind of darkness. So uh, kind of a rambly explanation, but that would be the basic <laughs> No, the that's a great explanation. Yeah. No, I, well, and the book is, it's very personal and mm-hmm. and your answer was very personal. You, you, this this book was something that you wrote out of your life experience and yeah. that that really comes through. I think it's one of the great strengths of the book is that mm-hmm. you're, you're not just uh, theorizing which a lot of theology books are, because I think it is a theology book. It's a book about the, the nature of God, but it's it's doing a whole lot more, but it's definitely coming out of your life, which I really, really loved. Hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that came across. Yes, good. Yeah, absolutely. And just just for listeners, if you want to, you know, if, you, if it's on a crossword puzzle and it's theodicy, it's T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. And so that's, it's, it's a big old theological term. And a lot of, if you have a, <laughs> Theology class, you'll probably have a section on theodicy. Because it is, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult question. And I, I, I've heard it said that the number one obstacle for people to believe in God is the problem of evil. Is just mm. to say, how can there be a God, a good God, when there is clearly so much pain and suffering and evil and brokenness? And so it's really challenging. And so you're, you're dealing with theodicy, but you're also dealing with, with it through your own life. And I think that's what's so compelling. Would you mind, Sarah, sharing with listeners what, what it is your own, you know, the, mm. the condition that you have struggled with? Yeah. So I um, have uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and I think mental illnesses come with a host of other related things. So you could, you know, add anxiety or depression or things like that. I think that's just part of the kind of the general um, aura of that disease. But yeah, I was... Um, I think there had been murmurs of it throughout my childhood, but I was diagnosed with it when I was 17 and just went through, which as I found later on was not uncommon um, for teenagers to have it hit really hard. But my sort of OCD, it's it's less to do with, you know, germs or kind of the more popular image of it, but just having deeply disturbing images of violence and perversion and really awful things in my mind. And I was 17 and had no idea where in the world these were coming from. Was it my fault? Was it was something happening to me? Was I sick? I just had no idea. So um, yeah, I think for me, it has morphed over time. It, it continues to be the same kind of thing of just really um, 
awful things, images in my mind, but it shifts now a lot to include the, you know, I worry constantly about, you know, are my children safe? Is my husband safe? What, what disaster might strike? But it's in some ways just living with an inward and constant image of the disasters that might happen at any given second. And so that is, that is the OCD that kind of prompted me to, it really just caused me to doubt God's goodness because I, I grew up in a, um, you know, in a Christian home and really believed in, in the things that I had been raised with, God's love for me, his sal- my salvation through his grace. But, but having that kind of evil in my mind, kind of in the most intimate parts of myself, made me really question God's power, his kindness, his capacity to heal me, his desire to heal me. I just felt like everything I knew about reality was thrown out the window when when this struck me, one of my teens. So And just for to clarify, so this is an actual condition that's it's not because I, I imagine some listeners may be going, Well, I worry too, or I have mm. bad thoughts or I can have but this is actually I mean, as I was reading the book, I thought this is pretty debilitating at times. Like and, and <laughs> Yeah. And no, also for you, this is something that it doesn't it doesn't go away. Is that no. is that right? I mean, this is no. I, I think with. it kind of shifts to I, I, it's it's a kind of thing that you have lifelong. There's nothing that can make it go away, and it's you know it's characterized. I think the the term is by intrusive thoughts. So we all have worries, but these are like very intrusive, specific images that for a person with OCD just come again and again. You can't control them. You can't pray them away. You can't make them different. They are just there. So and it continues for me. It's just a constant gallery of images of disaster is how I would put it. And it's, I I think something I've realized is that for my mental illness, and I think this is not uncommon, is it it attacks the things I love and the things I care about. So, you know, if you love something deeply, you can almost be sure that will be (laughs) caught up in the expression of the illness. And I think that's made it even more a battleground place for me in my spiritual life as well. Mm. So you have this condition that isn't, it isn't going away and mm. it's obviously pretty debilitating. It's, it's, certainly at times it sounded like when reading the book that there are times mm. when it can really come over you. Yeah. You're living with this condition in the midst of it. Then there are times when you probably have to ask questions, the hard questions like, why would God let this happen? Mm. Where is God when we hurt? Where is God in this situation? And what I really loved was that y- your, your answer really wasn't trying to give some of apologetic for free will or anything like that. You just basically said, I discovered that beauty was the thing that I needed. Like it was through things like feasts with friends and music and nature Mm. and all the ways you describe in the book so beautifully that touch our embodied souls. And Mm. that really is what I was so struck by with the book is, is again, for listeners, it's called this beautiful truth is, is just, it's about your story, you know, and you write about stories and I've written about story and I talk Mm. a lot about narratives and so forth because I think they're really essential to our, to our faith and to our journey. On on page 33, you write, this is the story that darkness always tells. And I I highlighted that line. I Mm. thought, wow, what was the story that darkness was telling you? I think that the story it was telling is the world is dark and bleak and everything you love is at risk of of being hurt or taken from you. And and really, ultimately, there is nothing you can do about it. And there is no one who ultimately will care or save you. I think that's the, I think that's the story told in us by darkness, that everything we fear will happen, and that there's really no loving or powerful or good presence who ultimately will save us from the things we fear the most. 
Yeah, I mean that that's that is the that is the the narrative of evil, right? Is is get us to to believe that there is no there is no good to turn us away. So so darkness was telling a story, but I also appreciated how you mentioned how you know Christians would say some things that are just also not helpful. And <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so my wife and I I've talked about this on the podcast. We lost a child oh, um, when she was two. So and she was sorry. born with a rare chromosomal disorder. But I, but I I noticed then and for many years to come how Christians just say the dumbest things. Like, you know, <laughs> yes. they're well meaning. They mean yes. They they want to <laughs> say something. You know, well, your baby may have died, but you know, everything works together for good. Oh, or, yeah. You know, or you know, God really just wanted her in heaven, and you know, oh. and he's go, well, I wanted her on earth. So, <laughs> yeah. but you know, you think, <laughs> but they're just so common. Why, why is that? Why are, why are some of the, these narratives so common amongst Christians who want, we just want an answer, not beauty. I mean, I mean, maybe we do want it ultimately, but why, why are they so common? Do you think? That's a really good question. I mean, my, my view would be that it's a combination of, of our own fear. We, we don't want to sit in a place where we have unanswered questions. And I think the tension of living in a fallen world and knowing that bad things can happen while still needing to believe in God, there's a sense in which we want to be able to explain everything. And the problem is, I don't think that we are given that. Um, I don't think that's in our gift. <laughs> I think that we know several things fundamentally. We know that the world is fallen and broken. Um, we know that we are broken within it. But the thing that I think that changes the narrative of that brokenness, that dark story that is told to us, is that Christ is here. And the, the one who created the world in its beauty has come into the darkness to restore it. And I think there's, but, but we don't have the promise of nothing ever happening to hurt us. We, we aren't, his coming doesn't mean, you know, zap, everything's okay. It means he will work within the most broken parts of ourselves to heal and redeem and to make things new. But I think we're often caught up in the desire to make sure we can control and answer all the questions so that we aren't left in this place where we might not have the answers. So I, I think that's one of the reasons. But I think that that is, yeah, I, th I think it's a really, um, I think it's unexamined because I think we say things like that, you know, oh, it was God's will or oh, God, you know, these these platitudes. I think we often say them wanting to comfort, but they often do the opposite because they're things we haven't thought deeply about. Um, and I think on a pastoral level, it can sound to someone who is bereaved and grieved and hurting. It, it can come. It can sound like God's voice, um, like "Oh well, God meant this for you," or "You know, mm -hmm. God wanted this to happen to you," or "Oh, this is just for your good." And I think I don't. I don't see those kinds of pat explanations in Scripture. I think there's wrestling. I think there's anguish expressed in the Psalms. I think there's yearning and desire and grief expressed in the prophets. And then there's the story of Christ coming in and shattering the darkness and living this embodied tale of goodness. And it is by that story that our own stories are turned around. Yeah. And so I think ultimately, why do we tell incomplete? I, I think we, I think the problem is we want to say statements of truth rather than live in the tension of the story. And I think that increasingly mm -hmm. what we need to do in suffering is enter into the story of the beauty that's come to redeem us rather than trying to encapsulate exactly why it happened to begin with. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah, I, I like how you put that too, because they—they're they, almost always pretty well-meaning. Oh, right? absolutely. I mean, they, I mean, there was one time I thought this. After my dad died, my mom had died a mm. few years before. But after my dad died, there was a woman in my church. She just said, "Well, I guess you're an orphan now." Oh, I went, gosh. <laughs> was that? 
She's like, she's like, yeah, you're nobody's little boy anymore. And I thought, oh. that's, I mean, it's a grown man, but I thought, well, that's a weird, I don't know what you meant by that. But so some of them maybe aren't, I don't know what they are, but I think many of them are, people want to say something comforting. Mm. But I think what you said, Sarah, is really helpful. I mean, that there's a sense of control, like this bad thing happened. I feel bad for you. So I'm going to say something that tries to make sense of it, but it, it often backfires. It doesn't. Yeah. And I also like what you said. It's it's as if they're speaking for God. For me, that's where I had I had to come to that realization that this is just this person, and they probably yes. saw that in Reader's Digest or some little quote that <laughs> they you know m- made them feel kind of good, and they're going to share it with me. Yes, I think what I, is so great about the book is that you're you. Well, I'll just quote page thirty eight. Here's here's something you write: Beauty is God's theodicy. Hmm. In other words, beauty is God's defense. In in the midst of all this, so you say, yeah, there's there is pain, there is suffering, there are d- diseases that we have to live with, or there are conditions that are besetting, or our kids get hurt or die, and whatever. But in the end, beauty is God's theodicy, which I I really really like. But I'm if I can just to push back, and I want to hear you answer this a little bit, just because I think some listeners may also be asking the same thing. How does beauty explain or justify the suffering, or should it? I don't think it. Ultimately, I don't think it should justify the suffering. I think mm-hmm. it is. So it. I think it is other to suffering. I. I don't believe that God created us for disaster. Um, I think it's something. I, I think the brokenness and the sin and the evil in the world is something that He doesn't say I needed that to accomplish my purposes. I think it's something He breaks in to to end and to heal. And to redeem, and so I think that, in many ways, beauty is, it, well, it is the total opposite of evil. It is beauty is wholeness and health and love, and um, it is the full expression of God's creative, holy, totally given self to us. And it is, in that sense, um, there's no sense in which beauty is meant to say, "Well, I needed the evil to make," you know. I, there's no sense in which evil was necessary for beauty to exist beauty comes to heal and make right the evil that shattered the original beauty. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah, I like that. That's right now. That's great. Well, I, on page 44, another quote that I highlighted and starred, you said, God gives us beauty, not as his argument, but as mm. his offering. Mm. I, I, what I really liked about that was at some point we have to sit back and go, we, there isn't going to be uh, an argument to win here. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, in the story of Job at the end, yes. in the whirlwind speech, God just goes, look, this is, I'm all powerful. <laughs> you're not going to, you're not going to force me into an answer. <laughs> but what I loved about that quote is you're saying, look, it, it's an offering. He's not trying to win an argument or we don't have to figure it out. But mm. beauty is actually God's offering. I, I was so struck by that. I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about that. I think that one of the things that was really interesting to me in actually kind of formally studying um, theodicy, that big word, is is looking at the different ways we understand who God is and how he uses power. And this is a bit of a tangent, but stick with me. Because I think that uh, von Balthasar, who's a theologian I really love, who writes a lot about beauty. Oh, I'm a big Hans fan. Oh, good. Me too. He's oh, one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. I, I have his photo up on my wall because I, I I love his idea of doing kneeling theology. And I just think his work is so, so it's truly beautiful and, and bringing yes. grace in our, our generations. So he talks about how, you know, in our fallen world, the idea of power 
is almost, it's almost always associated with evil, with domination, with the sense of being powerful over another. Whereas God's use of power, the way we see it in scripture is that he offers himself. So God's use of power is to give and he gives himself in creation and he gives himself by creating, you know, humanity in his image and in the creation of the world and in the blessing of his people. And, um, you know, we were meant to walk in that kind of self-offering as God walks. And I think that in a sense, the reason I talk about beauty as God's offering is God is not coming. The way he comes into our brokenness is not to flatten us with explanations or say, well, just, you know, shape up and be better. Or, well, here's the point by point play. He says he comes in, I think, offering his presence and himself. He answers our suffering by the gift of himself, literally in Christ. Um, that is the way the world is healed is by God's gift of himself to be shattered by a broken world in our place so that our shattering can be undone. Um, but also I think that, you know, on a personal scale, God's answer to our, our very most, you know, intimate secret suffering is to offer himself to come, to enter in, to sit with us in our sorrow and to be the one that begins to turn that sorrow backwards into joy, to heal us, to call us forward into renewal. So yeah, tell me if that answered your question. Oh, no, that's, 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 yeah. I mean, that's why I was so moved by it. I mean, as an offering and it is that, Mm. that, uh, that sacrifice, God, God, beauty is itself, uh, an act of sacrifice, right? Because the world doesn't have to be beautiful. It doesn't have to be. I mean, we, we live in this absolutely beautiful world and it, it, there doesn't have to be, there's, there's have to be color and yes. clarity and splendor <laughs> and all these, you know, the harmony and all, all the mm. aspects of beauty doesn't have to be. Yeah. God decided to give that as a gift. And, and then Christ of course is the, is the greatest of all, the, mm. the most beautiful as, as Balthazar would say, right? This, yes. That, that strange and it's a beautiful thing, the cross, if you can see it, it's, it's yes. all, in one sense, it's not at all, but. Well, so you studied at Oxford, and you, you quote your your tutor, Michael Lloyd, um, mm. who said this: uh, "The only possible defense for God against the charge of making a world riddled with suffering and violence is that He didn't." <laughs> and I was just I had to stop there for a second. Okay, it. wow, <laughs> unpack that idea. What was what was uh, what was he getting at? Well, I think he's saying we often feel the need. You know, there's a an impulse to explain suffering as part of God's plan. And I think, you know, there's this tension between how does suffering come into being? Did God plan it? Did God ordain it? Is it necessary? And I think um, my tutor, Michael Lloyd, would very strongly say God does not need or use evil or suffering in his purposes. God didn't, you know, this world that we have, it didn't have to be evil in order for God to accomplish his purposes. The evil is the result of, you know, God gives the people that he created agency. And, um, you know, we have contingent freedom in the sense of, um, you know, we're dependent upon God for our existence, but within that dependence, God has allowed us the freedom to follow him in holiness and love or to, to use our agency to destroy and disorder, to do what evil does, basically what, you know, what Satan does. And, um, yeah. So I think that basically he's saying in that sentence, God is not the creator of evil. It is not his will for the world to be broken. That was, yeah, the work of other agents, not God's, not God's mm-hmm. intent. Let me connect that with what 
earlier, you know, one of the, I think, examples you give of kind of dumb things people say, <laughs> we're, we're like, well, oh, yeah, 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 you were abused, but didn't it make you more compassionate? <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but, it, but along those lines, we do know that when we look at our lives and say, wow, I went through that, that thing, like, mm-hmm. like, for example, my daughter, right, who was born with this rare chromosomal mm-hmm. disorder, the two years she was in and out of hospitals and the struggle that that was, and then her passing. Mm. While I don't believe God like sent that to us, I mm. do know that it has changed who I am. Yes. And do you think that's partly why we, because again, we want it to make sense. We want to have control. Mm. We want this to all. So then you end up saying, well, yeah, God, God gave us a special needs child to, to make us more sensitive to others. I, I mean, I don't believe that, mm. but do you think that's partly why it is that we, we want to somehow make God the author of, oh, of the evil that we suffer? I think we want to see him as powerful and sovereign, and it's scary to us in a way to think, to live in that mystery, that tension between, you know, that God, how could I, how could something happen to me and God's all powerful, but it's not his will? Well, I, so you kind of come to this rock and a hard place where either you say everything is God's will, and thus the evil that happens to you is included in that, or you say, this is not what God willed. But I think there's a, a radical difference between saying this suffering came to me, you know, some zap God decided I needed more. You know, I think that one of the things that really scared me in the early days of my mental illness was what if this is just God's way of making me holier? What if God decided that I just wasn't patient enough or I was too prideful and he decided to zap me with this illness? And the thought of that was just horrific to me that, you know, a good God could use, could feel like it was necessary to use something that made me feel dirty and corrupted and dreadful that somehow that would be necessary for his um for him to make me what he wanted to be there's a huge difference between thinking god gave me this in order to you know the kind of what they call an instrumentalist view this was an instrument of my sanctification but there's a huge difference between that and saying here is my suffering i will hold my hands open to god and allow him to take what is most broken and most ugly and transform it into something that is beautiful. And I think that that to me is, is the radical grace and miracle of beauty is that it's not that evil doesn't happen to us. It's not that, um, you know, God suddenly zaps all the evil away. It's that he takes what is evil. And if we allow him, if we give it to him, he transforms it. Um, he didn't need it to happen to transform us, but as we offer it to him, he takes what is most broken in our lives and makes it the place of his, of his beauty, of the place where he is most clearly seen. And in that sense, you know, for me, OCD has been one of the great griefs of my life. And it's also the place where I have seen God's reality and God's inbreaking beauty again and again in ways I cannot deny. And so I think that's, and that's very much behind the book is this sense of wanting to witness to the reality of God's radical and beautiful presence coming into the darkness to transform it. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's why we we love the Romans 8, all things work together for good for those who love God. It's it's that somehow we can have that confidence that God will take these things. And in in the case of my wife, that's how we felt. We didn't feel like, Mm -hmm. oh, God gave this. Uh, I mean, we had dumb people say that. I mean, I had one (laughs) guy, I had a pastor actually ask me what sin we committed that, that, that God Oh I know. gosh, it's, I'm just so sorry. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, you get you get that stuff. There's, but we didn't. We never felt like that. You know that God had d- 
done it to us or something for any reason. Yeah. Uh, but that it was just this is life, right? This is mm. this happens life and in a broken world. But the, but that God did work amazing things in and through her life and in through us and mm. and we're grateful for that. So C.S. Lewis talked about being surprised by joy. Hmm. But in, in some ways, as I read your book, it felt like you were being surprised by beauty. Yes. And the, the book reads that way. It's, it's hmm. uh, chapter by chapter, you're going, oh, it's, she's, she went to an art museum or she went, she went to an old church and hmm. she connected with the communion of the saints or the swell of a coral piece or a hmm. sunset or a bowl of apples and you, you know, coming <laughs> of spring. You've got these, all these great things and you're going, wow. So that beauty, in a sense, um, became an epiphany for you. Would, would you say that? Oh, very much so. I felt that often in the darkest moments when I felt the farthest from God, there would be this almost kind of sly and teasing, you know, encounter with something. And in that moment, um, you know, there's that C.S. Lewis idea of you stand in this moment in which you taste something that is beyond the walls of this world. It's I, I think of it very much as what Tolkien talked about, eucatastrophe, which is his descri- description for what happens at the end, you know, happy ending of a story is a moment when we taste joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. And I think I would stand in those moments and taste this joy and this goodness that was so real. It it was realer than anything else I knew. Um and so it, it it startled me in a sense. It shocked me out of despair because in its presence, despair was, you know, a passing thing to, to use Tolkien language again. You know, it's a, the darkness is a passing thing, but light and high beauty forever beyond its touch is what is real. So yes, very much surprised by beauty. Mm. So you, you touch on the, the pandemic in the book on the suffering and pain and loss mm. that COVID has cost us on page 45. You, uh, I appreciated that you did that because we are still living in in that. Hmm. What what have you learned about God and beauty in the midst of this pandemic? Well, the interesting thing is too. I think entering the pandemic, my my husband's mother had just passed away, um, and then amidst the pandemic, we we had a, a new baby, and then I also had pneumonia for three months, and so we kind of had this time when, you know, the creation of beauty or encountering it felt felt so difficult to access. But I think something I discovered in the pandemic, I would say, is just how important the small choices of beauty are on a daily basis. Um, I think that one of the things that I've come to believe more and more um, as, I, as I've thought about beauty and walked with it is, is that um, I do believe God's goodness breaks into our darkness. So I think often beauty comes as an epiphany, something that shatters the despair around us. But I also think that it calls us to a kind of living and a kind of action and a kind of engagement with the world. And the more that we live by the hope that it kindles in us, the more we become capable of recognizing God's presence in our lives. And so in the pandemic, because you know, so much of, I think, the consequences of that were just a profound isolation and loneliness um, for us and for other people, it became really vitally important to me that we engage with the world and with each other in, in the small ways. So we, <laughs> I say we live the hobbit life. My husband and I have no background in gardening, but we planted roses. The children and I, we dug garden beds. We, you know, tamed the, the, the garden of our rental house. Um, so it was a place that was a rich and beautiful place for us, you know, in all those lockdown months. But those small choices to garden, to to bake bread, to engage with each other, to have conversations, to keep reading scripture, to pray together. These very small actions became very meaningful 
when all of the the usual rhythms of community and fellowship and church and friendship were were moved back. You could either just kind of sit in the silence of it, or you could begin to structure the silence and to make it echo with the music of God's goodness. And I think that in that sense, cooperating with those encounters with the beauty and learning to live by them, to be people capable of beauty ourselves was a real um, fundamental aspect of what I learned during COVID, if that makes sense. It does. And you know, what I found fascinating is, and and you, you, touched on it when your, you, your family did the gardening. Mm. Um, I mean, in America here, uh, you're in England, but I mean, America, like Home Depot just crushed it during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> because everybody was like home improvement. Everybody yep. was like, well, I'm here. So, boy, I'd rather the walls were pretty and I'd, yeah. let's paint or, exactly. uh, and tons of gardening, tons of, yeah. I noticed my neighbors, neighbors, <laughs> I hope they're not listening, but neighbors who <laughs> never took care of their yard very much suddenly, <laughs> It was great. And I wonder if that's part of it. It's like, look, I'm sort of isolated here and I I need some beauty around me. I need I need the smell of fresh bread and Mm. better paint on the walls and and more flowers in my garden. Until you said that, I hadn't thought maybe that longing for beauty was coming out. Absolutely. And I think, too, that, you know, it's those seem like very small acts and yet on a larger scale. You know, beauty is not just about making things pretty. It's about healing the world. It's about the reordering of, you know, what is disordered. It's about the healing of what is broken. And so the sense which you you plant a flower, you bake bread, you you write a letter, those are acts of almost, you could call it almost, you know, fierce defiance of the darkness. You know, you can either sit in the darkness and accept it, or you can say, no, I will plant a flower. I shall pick an apple. I shall make applesauce. It's the, it, it continues the tale of God's, God's kindness as it continues in the world. I, I think it is in that sense, quite a, quite a defiant act, um, these very small acts of, of creativity and beauty on the daily basis. Yeah. I think, I think we've, we, we've seen some really beautiful things in the midst of something really terrible and tragic and sad people that should not have left the planet. Uh, mm. this soon yeah. and loved ones that we've lost. And, and as you mentioned, the isolation, the loneliness, but also some, some incredible growth and beauty, maybe some things that will last, maybe mm. will snap back and they won't, I don't know. But so the book takes a really positive turn in the story of how you met your husband. Mm. And uh, uh, I, I was kind of curious along where, where's this going to go? And then suddenly, but, but uh, what I appreciated was you, you begin that story uh, with how you felt you weren't worthy of mm. of, uh, of being loved. Uh, so tell us that story, if, if you don't mind. <laughs> sure. Um, so I I, um, I met my husband in Oxford. Um, we had both, so I was 30 and had decided I needed to do something to snap myself out of kind of a, a rut and decided to take this one-year theology course in Oxford. So my husband and I, husband is Dutch. He was, he worked as a primary school teacher in the Netherlands before moving to Oxford, where he was um, exploring his sense of vocation to be a priest in the Anglican church. And we, we met at a church we basically both attended. And um, I just remember being so drawn to him. He just was prayerful and fun and 
had a deep knowledge of church history and we had all the same books we loved in common. And, um, but I had this really deep sense that because of my mental illness, which was something I have always found it very hard to talk about. Oddly, now I'm writing about it and <laughs> talking, you know, publicly about it. But for many years, it was something I just did not know how to explain to other people. Um, and it was something that I, I mean, as, as you say, it is continuous in my life. So it can, I continue to have panic attacks and, you know, these moments of deep darkness and huge debilitating fear. And, you know, how, how do you explain that to someone that you want to like you and to think that you're competent and beautiful and all these other things? And I think, um, you know, I, I had this great affection for him and an equally great sense that there was no possible way that someone as wonderful as him you know, could ever accept someone as broken as me. And it took, you know, almost a year of working through that um, kind of in the secret places with God walking, you know, in this, this love, growing love for Thomas. It's a kind of a hysterical um, story where he, he was told by his director that he should consider becoming a monk. And he told me that he was considering it. So I thought he was going to be a monk and we kind of both just got to be good friends in the meantime. But um, <laughs> he, he, he decided not to be a monk, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> and eventually we, we began to dating. But for me, it was a, a about an eight month process of, of waiting for that and, and really walking through, why do I feel this way? What does it mean? You know, do I, have I believed has my illness and the darkness taught me wrong things about myself? And what does it look like to accept the possibility of being loved and of God, you know, of accepting, you know, goodness from the Lord and will I expect good or will I expect evil? So, you know, I think by the time we started dating, I had kind of come to this whole inward journey of, of coming to a place where I could imagine someone being capable of loving me and then, you know, falling in love with this man who actually, you know, on our first date, we kind of put everything on the table and I told him about it and, you know, practically had a panic attack with him a couple of weeks later and he was just fine and prayed for me and walked with me and it made no difference to his affection for me. And truly in our married life, he has become the person who, who really walks with me through the, the darknesses and the ups and downs of my continuing mental illness, which uh, we laugh always gets a bit worse around pregnancy. So that's always fun. But, um, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's the story in a nutshell. But yeah, yeah. So he becomes an embodiment, really, of that of that love that yeah. God's unconditional love. But you know, I, I had so. a friend who used he used to always use this phrase when he'd see Christians doing good things for each other, or showing up in loving ways. He said, "Isn't it great when Jesus shows up with skin on it? You know, it's like a real <laughs> a real like person." Yeah. And I always I have Steve's phrase there has always stuck with me, and so. You got to see, you know, the incarnation in a sense in, um, in, in this human person, and that's yeah. a, that's a beautiful thing. Deep Speaking of the incarnation, so here's my last question. Okay. Um, and I I uh, I love how you sort of critique the uh, that narrative of the gospel that's really about uh, you know getting our sins forgiven so we can go to heaven <laughs> when we die. I love how you use the phrase "cosmic lawsuit." I like. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to use that one. But what you talk about is how it really bypasses the incarnation. It's mm -hmm. it's almost like it runs straight to the cross. And so my last question to you is actually the first question you had to answer in your essay at Oxford, mm -hmm. which is what difference does the incarnation make to the way Jesus saves us? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be like, oh, I want to read her answer. Or has it changed? <laughs> <laughs> no, it hasn't changed. Uh, I think it means that the whole of ourselves is caught up in redemption. I think we can be really tempted to see... Um, 
you know, God's redemption and the salvation story as God saves us from our sins. You know, this, this great lawsuit is wiped out against us. And then someday we'll go to heaven and leave all the other stuff behind. We'll kind of be evacuated from the world and, um, you know, we'll be good or bad, but the life of the here and now, the life of God's creation, that, that's somehow a story from the beginning, but it's not caught up in the salvation story. Whereas the incarnation where God comes, not just to save us, but he comes as a human. He takes on human flesh, which means now our flesh, our, the very stuff of the world, what we touch, what we taste, our embodiment is somehow caught up in what it means for Christ to be redeemed. And the, the body that, for Christ to redeem us, I mean, and the body that rises from the grave is a, a physical body. So that now our humanity, our embodiedness, the materiality of the world is caught up in the redemption story that God is telling in the world, which means that no aspect of our lives is um, is untouched by him. So our eating, our cooking, our parenting, you know, the way we care for creation, the way we meet injustice, the way that we care for the sick, the way that we, um, every aspect of that either is caught up in his story or, or is not. But I think as Christians, we are called to live out God's redemptive reality in every sphere of creation, because that is what God came to save. Not just, you know, he didn't come to zap our souls out of our bodies. He came to, to save what he created and renew it and to create a new heavens and earth where, where we will, um, he, he is the keeper. He's the saver. He's the restorer. And the whole of who we are is caught up in his redemption. So yeah, my, my answer hasn't changed <laughs> from that of the book. <laughs> That's a, Who's the theologian that said something like, that which is unassumed is unhealed or something? Uh, I think that was you know one that of the one? early church ones. That was... Um, I think it was an early, early was church. Irenaeus? Yeah, maybe? like mm-hmm. Irenaeus or Athanasius, one of those. One of but those yeah, two. I mean, I always love that quote because... Jesus assumed every part of human life so that yes. he could heal every. So if he didn't have a body, if he didn't take on, you know, the, the things that we deal with, it couldn't be healed. And even alienation and abandonment and everything that Christ felt is a way of, of healing every aspect of what it means Deeply to be human. So. And I, and I, and I do always want to say that, that, that the, the penalty substitutionary atonement isn't wrong. It's just limited. It's just one, it's just one, it's one way that Christ story. heals us is, is that I'm grateful that he, that he's washed my sins away. It's great. Yes. I'm great. Grateful <laughs> yes. that he's, uh, that's a good thing. Right. I can, I can sing just as I am without one plea, but that yes. his blood was shed for me. I'm, I'm all for it. I'm just, Amen. I really liked how you, you talked about that because we need it. We need a bigger gospel, a more beautiful gospel. That, fuller story. That, that takes into, yeah, exactly. Well, Sarah, thank you for writing this book. Um, oh. I know it's hard to write a book. I've written a bunch and <laughs> it's a, it's a challenging process. And, um, but, uh, I'm so grateful that you did. I think it's going to really help a lot of people and, and bring a lot of healing. So oh, thank you thank for that. You. Oh, you're so kind. Uh, yeah. Thank you. And thanks for being on the, on the podcast. This has been a, a blast. I, I, I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. So thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, it was a delight. Thank you so much for having me. This has just been lovely. I hope you enjoyed this Things Above conversation with Sarah Clarkson. I know that I did. She has so many great things to say, especially about beauty. I hope you join me next week for episode 119. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things Above podcast, you can do it on our website, apprenticeinstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that 
One day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above.